We are exploring together how the Lord's Prayer, if it were the only scripture you knew by heart, and I expect it may be, could help you keep the faith in a situation of total isolation or simply in a daily struggle. Last Sunday, we looked at the first sentence of the Lord's Prayer and saw how it reminds us who we are as we come to prayer and as we live out our lives. We are children of the coming King. We saw what a privilege it is to call God Father, a privilege secured to us by Jesus himself, and that if we are to reverence and respect our Heavenly Father, we must pray for the coming of his kingdom, which is the only way that his will will be fully accomplished. Perhaps right now you are thinking, that's all very well. A great privilege and all that. A glorious destiny. But meanwhile, I have bills to pay and relationships to untangle and a future to worry about. If so, you are ready to consider the second sentence in the Lord's Prayer, in which Jesus tells us what is necessary to living the faith day in and day out. I would remind you that Jesus worked as a carpenter in Nazareth up until age 30 before beginning his public ministry. Perhaps he was providing for his mother and younger brothers and sisters, if, as we suspect, Joseph died early. Jesus was no prodigy, no Justin Bieber. He was a middle-aged man when he came for baptism at the River Jordan and knew very well what it's like to get up early, to pay bills, and to pick up the dry cleaning. So do not be surprised that his prayer moves from the glorious heights of the coming kingdom and our privileged status as beloved children of God to the realities of daily living in the meantime. There are four necessities for living the faith day to day as described in the second sentence of the Lord's Prayer. Four action verbs, and I will identify them as ask, trust, confess, and forgive. The sentence reads, give us this day, or today in the contemporary version, our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, or sins, as we forgive those who trespass or sin against us. So ask. Jesus tells us to ask for our bread each day. And this implies that we pray every day. And bread here clearly means more than literal bread but represents what we need to keep body and soul together, food and clothing and shelter and medicine. We need to ask because God is the source of these good things, and living by faith is looking to God for them. In our gospel, we are told to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The first sentence of the Lord's Prayer allows us to fulfill that command. That is why it's the first sentence. We pray, seeking the kingdom first, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as in heaven. 
But this is where confusion can occur. In Matthew 6, 25 to 34, our gospel reading, we read about the birds of the air and the lilies of the field. And we think, does God just send us money and food and apartment leases? Is a faithful Christian a passive beggar, waiting like Dickens' Mr. Micawber for something to turn up? The answer is no, because you are not a bird or a lily. God has you under a different dispensation. You are made in the image of God. And like your creator, you can reason, you can create, you can work, and you can develop. Were Adam and Eve in the garden before the fall, just sitting cross-legged, waiting for fruit to drop into their mouths? No, they were created to be fruitful, to have dominion, to work the garden, and to keep it. So living by faith is not passive waiting for God to provide. But you and I need to understand that every natural ability, every spiritual gift, every opportunity, every achievement is God's gift to us, enabling and empowering us. And they need to be asked for, and they need to be thanked for. We think that we earn our necessities and strive to afford luxuries by our own strength. We give to the church some of what we feel we've earned. When we say grace before meals, and I fear your generation bothers less and less with this, especially when non-believers are present, we retain a memory of this dependency. But Jesus will have none of our half-heartedness. Ask, he says, each day for what you need, because only God, your heavenly Father, can secure it to you. Give us this day our daily bread. That is an acknowledgement that our dependency is complete, that even our necessities come from him. In John chapter 6 and verse 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never thirst. Have Christians ever starved to death or died of thirst? Yes, and in considerable numbers. Then what does this promise mean? It means that Jesus himself is our deepest need, our real bread, and that living or dying, he gives himself to us. But ask every day. Trust. I choose the word trust because implied in the instruction to pray, give us this day or today our daily bread, is that we should ask for what we need now, for today. We are not to give in to fears about the future, asking God to set us up with a long-term plan and extensive security. No, ask for what you need today and leave tomorrow in trust for God. I love the oracle of Agur, son of Jacob, our first lesson from Proverbs 30. He is both humble and refreshingly honest. If he does not get what he needs to survive, that is, if he's in poverty, he says he will steal and profane the name of God. But if he becomes rich, he says, he may forget the Lord, crediting his success to himself. 
So he simply prays, feed me with the food that is needful for me. Of course, Agur, as for any good Jew, Israel's experience of 40 years in the wilderness is fundamental. If you remember, they were fed by God on manna, a word which means, what is it in Hebrew? And it was a fine, flaky substance that looked like frost and appeared every morning on the ground. But they were to gather only the manna they needed for that day. If they tried to keep it overnight, it would spoil, except on Friday, when they could gather two days' worth and not have to profane the Sabbath by working. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 16. So when Jesus enjoins us to ask only for our needs for today, the example of Israel and the wilderness manna would be very much in the minds of his disciples. Again, we live in a society where some advanced planning is necessary and wise. Institutions like pensions, insurance policies, and health savings accounts are useful. For contemporary Christians, the domain of trust is psychological and spiritual. That is, we are not to become anxious and obsessed about the future. And particularly, we are not to accumulate wealth far beyond our needs because you never know, quote unquote. When so many good causes and needy people cry out, for our assistance and support. As Psalm 65 puts it, the God who hears prayer and pardons sin will satisfy his people and provide for them in abundance. By awesome deeds, you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of earth. So ask every day for what you need that day, trusting God, with your future. What else does Jesus want from us, as indicated by his prayer? He wants us to ask for forgiveness for our sins. In the traditional version, the word is trespasses, which has an archaic flavor, and as a legal term means an unpermitted intrusion on another's property. Surely our wrongdoings have a broader scope than that. But in Luke's version, chapter 11, the word is sin, which is clearly what is meant. Forgive us our sins. The comfort here, if it is a comfort, is that sinning is expected, or at least possible, on a daily basis. And that we, the us and the our, are in this together. This is no small thing for those of us who feel that we are abnormally sinful, and probably beyond forgiveness. I'm thinking particularly of Christians struggling with an addiction who ask again and again for forgiveness for an unbroken pattern of sin. But simply asking our Heavenly Father to forgive us our sins isn't enough unless we have paused to reflect on and admit to what they might be. This is why we need a daily accounting because we will be wonderfully hasty and forgetful if we do it only once a week in the brief silence before the general confession here at church. And remember in your daily time of reflection, sins of omission as well as commission, 
and attitudes and feelings as well as words and deeds. Jesus is saying that you and I must keep clean and open the channels of fellowship with him, which sin constricts and clogs. Forgive us our sins each day as we confess them, and our Heavenly Father will. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. That's from the first letter of John, chapter 1. But now comes the hard part, the fourth part, the bad news. That promise of forgiveness is conditional, not absolute. It is conditioned on our forgiving those who sin against us. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That little word, as, is mighty important. It means that you and I will not receive God's forgiveness, will not be cleansed from unrighteousness if we are refusing to forgive those who sin against us. Friends, this is very, very hard. And if you think it's no big deal, I suggest that you haven't been seriously sinned against. But if you have been, you know how hard it is to forgive. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. That requires repentance on the part of the wrongdoer. Forgiveness doesn't make you a friend of the wrongdoer. But forgiveness restores your agape love for him or her, meaning that you do not desire to take revenge and will not do so, that you can pray for him and, if appropriate, meet his needs, because having forgiven him, you will and work the best for him, which is the heart of agape love. How is this humanly possible? How did those families of the Emmanuel Church members who were gunned down in Charleston a few weeks ago manage to forgive Dylan Roof for inflicting a terrible loss on them so soon after the crime was committed? I recommend a careful reading of Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17, which was our second lesson. It begins with the injunction to forgive each other, quote, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. But I would like to turn the order in this passage around so that the rest of the passage is understood to answer the question, how do we obtain sufficient grace to forgive when we have been seriously wronged? Paul writes in answer, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. That's verse 15. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's verse 16. Doing everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That's verse 17. I could preach another whole sermon on this passage, but I won't. I just commend it to your mature Christian reflection. 
Can you not see that if you and I are living in the reality of these blessings, that we may, if the occasion arises, be able to forgive as those family members in Charleston apparently have done. So this is what Jesus is calling us to in the second sentence of his prayer, a daily life of complete dependence, radical trust, continuing repentance, and unlimited mercy. This is living the faith day to day, And these things are not the achievements only of great saints, but the practice of ordinary Christians like you and me. They are not options for extra credit. They are necessities. Amen.